Hello, and once again, welcome to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. I'm your co-host, Jack Snefflin. Thank you for joining us for episode 14, our penultimate episode of the Sports Bracket. Yes. This week, we'll be discussing 1984's The Karate Kid, as well as 2006, Stick It. It's really interesting. I didn't expect these films to be at the end of uh, the side of the bracket. Admittedly, Stick It had a bit of a, a coasty intro. I wouldn't even say that. It went up, in round one, it went up against a uh, League of Their Own. I was thinking about the time it went up against Blade to Glory. Yeah. <laughs> that, that was the coast. Yeah. Also, it never went up against Blades of Glory. Karate Kid went up against Blades of Glory. Wow. What did it go up against? What are... Blue Crush, never mind. Stick it. Fought its way here tooth and nail. It's emerging out of the muck with, like, blood on its knuckles. Yeah, and I love both of these movies just very different ways. Yeah. Karate Kid sits probably at the, at the midpoint of good film and good movie on our bracket. Whereas I think Stick is very much a good movie, but as a film... Question marks. Yeah. Um, for those who haven't heard us talk about this, we use sort of movie as, oh, this is fun. There's a movie where it's film is like, ah, yes, the structure, the themes and motifs, yes. These are amazing all scene. Yeah, movie is like how something makes you feel whether you enjoy it or not. Film is like the technical quality of the writing and the camera work and those sorts of things. As we called it for like two episodes before abandoning the idea, the watchability versus the artistry. Yes. I remember we were going to try to do that. <laughs> Yeah. Those were our early episodes. They're, uh, it's fine. It's fine. I wouldn't necessarily say bad, but they are, um, very unpolished. We didn't know how to do noise cancellation yet. Or how to add clips. No. Mm. Rather than look to our past, let's go ahead and look into our future and start talking about Karate Kid. Right. So Karate Kid was directed by John G. Alvinson, who made a lot of films you've never heard of. Then he made Rocky. Then he made some more films you've never heard of. And then he made Karate Kid. And then a few more of those. And then more films you've never heard of, including Rocky V. He has this running theme, I guess, of ordinary people doing crime or criminals doing ordinary things. I would say it's more like his theme is very much underdogs. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. His stuff is weird and looking at the Wikipedia somewhere is maybe not super interested in exploring it so I didn't get too deep into them. I am morbidly curious about his last film called Inferno from 1999 which stars Jean-Claude Van Damme Danny Trejo and Pat Morita. Yeah, it sounds great. <laughs> Just those three in a film together boggles my mind. I, on the exact opposite of the spectrum, am interested in his Guess What I Learned Today which is about a bunch of people trying to stop sex ed being taught in school, but it turns out that they're actually gays. It's from the 70s. Oh. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm assuming it's not going to be good. <laughs> yeah. But I am more really curious, because queer representation from like before the 90s is this increasingly wild Westian experience that I'm fascinated by. Yeah, it's like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. So... I don't put a lot of stock in the director for being the one who's responsible for this film being the way it is. This is a good movie, and he's made other movies. Although, the similarities between this and Rocky, they make a lot of sense knowing that it's the same director. Yeah, but also the very polished nature of Karate Kid versus the slapdash nature of Rocky is very interesting to me, and I'm intrigued to see how he went from that to that. I'm assuming it's mostly budget and then winning an Oscar because of Rocky. Somehow. Sorry. <laughs> I rag on Rocky far too much. It's 
fine. It's fine. It's fine. It has some major problems. Yeah. I'm going to put more of the success of the film on Robert Common, the writer. This is based on real-ish life. He was in an altercation when he was 17 and started taking karate to defend himself. He studied under a guy who was a lot like Kreese and was like, hmm, I don't like this guy's ethos. So he switched to a guy who was a lot more like Mr. Miyagi and in fact studied under Jojo Miyagi who was a influential creator of certain karate techniques that I only kind of understand. Yeah, he was the founder of the Okinawan Kukuryo school of karate. Exactly, yes. (laughs) I also did research on this. (laughs) I don't know enough about karate to understand what he did that was important, but it seems pretty cool. And there's a few other, like, bits of real life stuff that was going on like Robert Common had an article about a guy who took up karate to deal with some bullies and was raised by a single mother and Nurika Marita was unfortunately actually in a camp in real life which was one of performing some of his performance in the film so yeah uh, there's lots of realism that slides its way in here yeah unfortunately a lot of Japanese actors of a certain age happen to have spent time in internment camps George Takei was in a similar position I just want to slide in a bit of trivia here common help with a few films you had not heard of again uh, although one of them was sean penn's first film but he was mentored a little bit and wound up being involved with karate kid by frank price who is responsible for a lot of things you've heard of like six billion dollar man kojak columbo ghostbusters et back to the future and howard the duck <laughs> you can't win them all <laughs> Uh, um, Robert Common then went on to make the other Karate Kid films. Well, one through three. He didn't make the Hilary Swank Karate Kid. I didn't know that was a thing until doing research for this episode. Wow, I'm watching that as soon as I possibly can. It involves falconry. What? <laughs> the fuck? Why did I watch two episodes of Cobra Kai instead of watching that? I don't know. That's That was your decision. Yeah, I know. I found out about the wrong thing. Uh, and that's what I learned about Karate Kid. There's a few other people who are involved, but none of them seem to really like stick out as being major movers and shakers. Really? I'm surprised you didn't bring up James Crabbe. Hmm? The cinematographer for the film. He frequently worked with Evelson. He was also on Rocky. But he's also one of the few openly gay cinematographers in Hollywood at the time. I somehow didn't find that bit. Yeah, uh, he unfortunately passed away from AIDS in 1989. Well, yeah, um, gays of a certain age, you see. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of people passing away, I don't have, like, a big thing about it, but I'm intrigued that Alvinson, who was responsible for a lot of the Karate Kid franchise, died in t- 2017, and then the next year we got Cobra Kai. Hmm. I don't know if it's, like, on his death the rights passed to somebody else, or if it was, you know, already in development and then he just happened to pass away right before it happened, or what? Yeah, uh, most of the major people involved with the Karate Kid franchise, at least the original one, the writer, Common, is the only one who's still among us. Well, it, and the actors. Oh, well, yeah, and, and the actors. As you can see on Cobra Kai now on YouTube, which I understand what it's doing, but it's one of those middle-aged white man is a horrible person, let's watch him slowly get better kind of things that I have a lot of trouble watching. Yeah, like it is exactly the wrong genre for you. Right. I really enjoy those, depending on how well they're done. Oh, sure. Like, I can tell this is probably going to be a very good version of that, because it's got Billy Zabka and Daniel LaRusso like, in the original roles. and Ralph Macchio. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's got Billy Zabka and, and God, it's got Billy Zabka and uh, Ralph Macho back as their original roles, like thirty years on, which is a great concept. I would honestly really enjoy seeing other things from the eighties doing this, just to kind of see where that goes. Like mm-hmm. it sounds kind of fun, like that Ghostbusters movie we're getting. I take it back. I don't want to see more things <laughs> doing this. What do we want to get into for the actual film? So in our first episode, we talked about our complicated feelings about um, Mr. Miyagi and the mystical Asian mentor figure and how the film generally rises above that. And knowing that he's somewhat 
based on real life does even more to kind of make me feel less weird about that, I guess. Yeah. The writer had some very real personal interactions with someone from Okinawa who was a practitioner of that specific form of karate and uh, Noriyuki Morita's experience with the internment camp and everything like it it le- it gives a lot of credibility to that character yeah shout out to Daniel now for checking us on stuff with race where we get out of our lane both with Karate Kid and last week with Cool Runnings I do also think it's interesting that given how authentic Mr. Miyagi feels due to Marita's performance and just how much of a cultural figure he is it's very interesting that initially he was denied the role yeah, because he was associated with a stand-up comedy and he kind of didn't fit what they were looking for exactly. Yeah. I even flunked karate, but that wasn't my fault. Karate, I flunked because well, the instructor was a little weird. He wore a pink belt. <laughs> you know, nice, lacy, ruffled, happy coach, you know. Little high heel thong. <laughs> the toughest thing that he could chop was liver. Yeah. So he grew a beard and imitated his uncle's accent. Yeah. It also is wild who they were initially considering for the role of Mr. Miyagi. Mm-hmm. Toshiro Mifune, like of Akira Kurosawa fame, as in in Rashomon and Seven Samurai. <laughs> I know, right? The only reason they didn't get him is because he didn't speak English. That would have been amazing. Honestly, looking at some of the initial casting considerations for this film, we could have had such a very different movie. Urgil Daniel LaRusso's might have included Robert Downey Jr. or Nicolas Cage. Charlie Sheen. God, I forgot Charlie Sheen was on that list. Crispin Glover for Johnny. Fitting. Definitely fitting, although it's weird because I can only imagine him as Marty McFly's dad. (laughs) And then we could have also had Demi Moore as Allie. Speaking of people who could have been, on the Wikipedia page for The Punisher that uh, Robert Common produced and helped with, there's just a lot that says Nicole Kidman was also considered. It doesn't matter for what. <laughs> I really I really want to believe him at for The Punisher. It'd be weird as fuck and I'd be into it. Again, outside the scope of this podcast, but imagining what would come of a woman taking up the mantle of Punisher in any media. We'll save that for our <laughs> side project, uh, Gratuitous Punishers. <laughs> no, that's not actually happening. Gratuitous Punishers on Infinite Earths. <laughs> We're doing very well this episode. <laughs> oh. Uh, Whatever. It's, it's the penultimate episode. We get to have some fun. Well, I have one more note that I haven't really gotten to with Mr. Miyagi. He has a great line where he's trying to get uh, the LaRussos to take the bonsai trees, and, as, and they're kind of like, oh, oh no, no. we can't. No. God, I, I don't mind feeling. I really like it when characters leverage politeness for their own ends. It's really a fun trope, and it shows mm. a certain mastery of culture that is really fun, and I feel like we don't get that much. Like, it's the kind of thing you saw a lot in, like, Jane Austen-type novels, and politeness is maybe less of a virtue that we are adamant about these days. <laughs> that kind of politeness, and it's, it's nice to see. I think a closer um, way to describe it is hospitality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's, the, it's hospitality culture. Yes. Yeah. One other thing that I'd really like to praise... I, in general, like, for some reason, just really pick up on this in movies. So there's this scene where um, Daniel is in the Chinese restaurant, and he is talking to himself. Why, she buries Judy in a second. She buries Judy? Uh, Listen, you'll tell me about it later. I love you. Smile. Excellent smile. She's really smart. I don't know. I, she's beautiful. I say she's beautiful. I think she's beautiful. <laughs> Sorry. It's a really funny scene. I love it. It is a really funny scene. It does such a great job of getting us inside of Daniel's head without 
him having to bounce off of a character. There are so many ways that writers and directors uh, move things around to move internal monologue, which in general does not work terribly well in films, but you see it occasionally. Stickhead is actually a pretty good example of where it's used well, but Mm -hmm. in general, it's a hard thing to do well, and they want to try and move that to external dialogue. So you introduce some other character for them to talk to, but... Here they're like, no, it doesn't make sense for Daniel to talk about this with anyone. So they just have him there talking to himself, daydreaming. And it's great, and it's a very teenage boy thing to do. Yeah, it makes him feel super dorky, and I think that works really well for his character. Because he it <clears throat> adds to the like lovable goofball thing they're going for. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, admittedly, a guy just sort of sitting at a table praising a girl can, get, can veer towards creepy really fast if you're not careful, but... Partially because like, Malcolm Nash is a really good actor. They managed to thread that needle pretty well. Mm-hmm. It also helps that he has already interacted with Allie at this point, and yes. they, have, they have chemistry. It's yeah. not like, I'm pining after her from afar. Right. I think it's about like three or four conversations in. Somewhere close to that, yeah. Yeah. Speaking of Allie, last week I talked around an idea that I haven't quite gotten to yet with Cool Runnings about this idea of people being reduced to traits and removed their, their identities. Uh, and there's a fun bit where uh, someone refers to Ali as the blonde. Yeah, who's that, who's that blonde in blue? The hills. Hills, what's the hills? Rich. Rich. We don't learn her name till a few scenes later. And I think it's a good way to show how Daniel sees her more and more as a person as opposed to just like an object or a war. I am not a prize to be won. And that's a good character trait. I think it helps make that relationship feel good and the issue, because it shows that he like cares about her as a person. It doesn't go on super in depth because it's not Ali's film, mm-hmm. but there's definitely an element of her trying to have her own individuality away from what her parents think and want and what Johnny thinks and wants she should want. And I like that about her. I think they do that arc in a way that feels good and genuine without spending too much time on it and dragging the film down. Uh... I will say that I'm not a huge fan of the entire scene at Encino Oaks. Oh, no. I think it's kind of superfluous, and it, all of it does is it removes Allie from the picture for a little while, and it doesn't really accomplish much else. I can see if they dug into more of Allie's story or even Johnny's story, that would have made more sense to be there, but I'm not sure whether like those plot points were kind of cut down for time, but we see that little bit of skeleton from the cut content there, and it's not really doing anything for the main crux of the film. But I think what skeleton we're left with still works, even if it isn't entirely cohesive, and even if there are, like, vestigial scenes. Yeah, like, it's it's not the worst. I just think that what that scene does for Daniel's plot could have been be- done better with another scene. If we're talking about the theoretical Ali and Johnny plots, then I think that scene would have worked well for those. That's fair, yeah. Like, I I would love to see, like, a director's cut of this. Oh, for sure. Speaking of which, again, circling back to Cobra Kai, because there is a scene in the first episode of Cobra Kai where we see Johnny's teacher basically choking him for the crime of being only in second place, and I'm wondering if that's a cut scene from this film or if it's from an, a later film. I'm pretty sure it's from another film. Okay. Kreese comes back in Karate Kid 3. Yeah, I think I saw a little bit of that when I was looking at yeah. Wikipedia. So that might be like a flashback to what happened then. Okay, sure. We're veering a lot into the Karate Kid continuity, the, the Karate Kid annuity. 
for for this episode, but talking about this film without talking about how far it went and how it's still going misses opportunities to understand it. We have dug into this film a number of times already, and we've so far done a decent job of avoiding the sequels and whatnot. And like the sequels and the remakes are all demonstrate exactly how much cultural power this film has. And I think it is important to talk about that and just how much staying power this film has and how much depth these characters have that we're still interested in exploring them 35 years later. Speaking of depth and exploring, Cobra Kai brings up a point that I'd always been unsure of and hadn't really brought up from Karate Kid, which is that Daniel's last point when he's doing his whole crane style thing does kick Johnny in the face, which is apparently an illegal thing for the tournament. And I'm intrigued by that. Not as far as I'm aware. Like, they never mentioned those rules. It's pretty much everything that's above the waist is fine. Daniel, look, everything above your waist is a point. You can head, you can hit the sternum, kidneys and the ribs. You got it? Okay. I... I remember there's being there's a bit where it's like headshot doesn't count during that fight. Somewhere. I don't recall that, but mm. it it could be a thing. Okay, I acknowledge that that tournament is more of a narrative device to show how far Danny has come as a character than strictly like meant to be a accurate representation of karate. So yeah, it's also like specifically designed to pace out the confrontation with the Cobra Kai dojo rather than just having it all happen at once. Right, and those fight scenes still hold up well enough. They're still used in flashback stuff in Cobra Kai which is filmed like today mm-hmm. unlike say the fights from Rocky which are noticeably absent from the Creed movies <laughs> uh, there's even a scene of Creed watching the fight and we focus on his face but we don't really see any of that fight scene <laughs> just intriguingly we've ragged on Rocky quite a bit already so yeah ragging on Rocky it's a uh... Ragnaroki <laughs> <laughs> I was going to make a Scooby-Doo joke, but somehow you got to a better one first. <laughs> Speaking of getting to a better one, well, let's talk about Stick It. Are we, are we talking about Stick It is better than Rocky? Because then I would agree. Karate Kid, well, I mean, that's the whole point of this episode. Right. I mostly just wanted to transition, but also, you know, that's, that's spicy drama to, well, yeah, what's it going to win? Uh, so, tell me, why is Stick It the way it is? So, uh, to understand Stickett, we need to talk about Jessica Bedinger, who both wrote and directed this film. Her other notable works include writing for Bring It On, Aquamarine, and she was also a consultant on Sex and the City. She is also a former model, an author, producer, and co-wrote songs for Miranda Lambert and Emerson Hart. Tongue is sharp, got an axe to grind. Girls go wrong, men go right after them. Yeah, she is a very multi-talented woman. Her being a former model makes a lot of sense given that both Stick It and Bring It On have some thoughts about women and presentation of bodies. Mm-hmm. Looking at her catalog of work, which is varied, but like relatively on the small side, it definitely gave me a deeper sense of why Stick It is the way it is. Mm. It's also very interesting that Stick It is her only directorial credit as of right now. Mm. I would love to see another film directed by her, but I think that if she hasn't directed one, it's either Stick It was not good enough to allow her to work again, or that she does not want to direct again. If she doesn't want to direct, then you know, she shouldn't you know, yeah. direct, obviously. But if it's just the former, mm-hmm. uh, imagine her doing a Batgirl movie. That'd be fun. Any other notables? We also have producer Gail Leon. Notable production includes her first Gattaca, Aaron Brockovich, Win a Date with Tad Hamilton, 
and Edge of Darkness from 2010. The only reason I include Edge of Darkness there is it was Mel Gibson's return to acting after the five-ish year hiatus after his DOI arrest, an anti-Semitic tirade. Yikes. So we can partially blame her for that. I mean, definitely blame Mel Gibson the most. Right. But... Yeah, unfortunately, she contributed to, like, reviving his career. Anyway, last but certainly not least, we have cinematographer Darren Okada. He's worked in the industry for 35 years. Nice. Notable works include Halloween H2O, Lake Placid, Bring It On, and Mean Girls. Wow, what a, what a repertoire. Yeah, like, that transition from early days to doing horror stuff to working in these, like, teen comedy things is really interesting. But, I mean, given the bus from Mean Girls, I can see where the horror stuff came from. Yeah, after reading about Akata, I'm like, I get some of what's going on here. I get why that history in horror is being really useful here, and especially useful in teen comedies, especially ones that, like, have a point to make. Quick sidebar, if you haven't seen Lake Placid and you're into kind of B-horror stuff and or you're into Betty White as the tamer of a bunch of human-eating alligators, definitely watch Lake Placid. It's great. Honestly, Lake Placid plus Crawl, which is kind of still in theaters right now, would probably be a great double feature. Yeah. But after Stick It, he kind of like transitioned more into the raunchy comedies. He worked on Harold and Kumar Escape Guantanamo Bay, Baby Mama... American Reunion. That was until about 2015 when he joined the Academy Board of Governors. And then like, like the Academy. The Academy? Oh, wow. Yeah. I was looking at his filmography and I'm like, why the stop after 2014? I mean, his, his career was a little weird around then, but then I saw, oh, that's why, that's why he transitioned to television. <laughs> yeah. Huh, interesting. Mm -hmm. So, since then, he has not worked in film and has been working more on TV. Like, he's done some work for Scandal and a few other high-profile shows. Oh, sure. He has a very varied style, then. The films we talked about have a wide range of visual stylings, so he's clearly able to do some amount of uh, modulating what he presents with what the story needs, which is Mm -hmm. cool, which that tracks. From this film, like... A lot of the major people in the production had very multifaceted interests and skills, and it definitely shows in the final product. Mm -hmm. This is a passion project, I think. It definitely feels like it. Yeah. Especially with, I wrote and directed this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So now that we've established that the people who wanted to make this film were trying to say something, what were they trying to say? I mean, we we have definitely talked about that, about the way women's bodies are policed. And also there's this underlying current of innovation and creativity as opposed to uh, traditionalism and conformity. Mm -hmm. All of those themes shine through. The text of the film lines up with all of the visuals of that in that regard which is really good. And I think it does a really good job of making its point. Yeah, speaking of individuality and creativity. So, refresher, in the grand finale, the various girls who are competing in the gymnastics competition decide that everyone's going to scratch except the person that they decide is going to win because, as a way to protest the unfair judging. And I'm intrigued that of all the different possible routines, our protagonist goes for the floor routine, which is not that the floor routine requires less skill, but she's so far been much more about the verticality on things like the bar. Mm-hmm. And I'm intrigued that she wanted to be the one to do the floor routine, but 
it winds up making sense because the floor is closest to ballet of the possible competitions. It has a lot of storytelling. You can see how what she's doing has an element of this is who I am, this is what I'm trying to relate mm. in her movements. Like I can see the character there. It's a good like apogee of her arc of going from being very closed off and withdrawn to trying to express herself and but express herself in her own ways. It's really interesting, like watching her arc from there to the scene in the diner, which I think is like a pivoting point for the film and like you really get a sense of what we're doing here where the film is going jeff bridges finally kind of gets to stretch his acting muscles yeah then we're kind of sequestered in the vga gym and with Haley and her internal monologue and we kind of like lose track of what this film is really about and then we get to the second competition and we get the scene where Haley has the soda thrown at her and it's this very literal wake-up call that the specter of Haley's past is still hanging over her. It's hanging over that entire competition. Almost literally since her mom is there in the stands. Mm-hmm. And like that's where she talks through things with Fickerman. I'm going to talk to your father. Maybe you should go back to Krista Franks. Krista Franks? Hey. You want me to go back to the Franks? Well, you don't listen to me. You know, clearly you listen to him long enough. To- yeah, long enough to hook up with my mom. She leaves that competition without finishing, and then she gets her clean slate. Comes back and like, I'm here not because I'm forced to be, I'm here for me. Yeah. I will say though, I'm not sure the film will be stronger if she didn't have that clean slate. Because she has that clean slate, she can, she's more or less free to do whatever. Um, and it's, it's all about her, which, which is fine yeah. as a character trait. But I think if she didn't have that clean slate, the choices made in the finale to organize the Great Scratch would have been more impactful because she would have more to lose and she, and she would be willing to risk her livelihood and not being in jail hood for her values, which I think might be a stronger story. That's fair, but going this route gives Vickerman a kind of redemption arc yeah. and allows him to pay it forward. He sees potential in Haley, and it, you know, it may not be in gymnastics, but he knows that whatever she wants to do and sets her mind to, she's going to be great at it. He wants to give her options. He doesn't want her there if she's forced to be there because he's seen what she's like when she's forced to be there. She is obstinate and she's going to do whatever she can to get away. It's the whole, if you love it, set it free and it'll come back to you sort of thing. It definitely still works. I think it just hinges a lot on whether Vickerman must have that redemption arc. And I'm not sure if it takes away from Haley's story overall. It might be just fine. I think, I think it's fine, especially since it gives... Between Vickerman and the judge, it gives Haley some adults who actually care about her yeah. and what she wants and what she needs. That's true. And, and I don't want to sacrifice the judge scene for anything. It's very good. Yeah. You know, Haley, there are a lot of great people who had jerks for parents. We got to stick together. Giving Haley some good adult role models is a fine decision to have that plot point. Yeah. And I think without that, it would create a very hostile world for Haley to be rebelling against instead of one that has good people and then some systems that need to change, but the good people around those systems that might be able to be part of that. Mm-hmm. Do we need to say anything more about uh, the internal dialogue? We, we talked about that a little bit with Karate Kid. I don't know if you want to circle back here. If we've set our piece. Like I mentioned earlier... In general, films like to avoid internal monologue because it doesn't work terribly well. It's not 
interesting. It's one of the biggest differences between film and books, at least from a writing perspective. Right. But here they decided to go with that because Haley is alone in this gym. She is a quote-unquote troubled youth. She's not going to open up to anybody, and especially not anyone here because she's forced to be here. She has a history of gymnastics that is incredibly painful for her, and she's being forced into it again. Mm-hmm. It makes sense that she is only going to be thinking these things. And they make it interesting by A, introducing the concept very early on in the film to use later, and B, to have it during these scenes of her training and failing and not hurting herself but straining herself right flopping as opposed to flying and it also gives us that really fun bit where she's heading into the final floor routine and she's thinking there are things you wish for before big moments i wish my friends were here god i wish my parents were different i wish there was someone who got what was happening and could just look at me and tell me we weren't crazy that we weren't being stupid Someone to say, I'm proud of you. And I got your back, no matter what. Haley, Haley. What's wrong? Nothing. Listen, I, I, uh, I just want you to know. What? That, uh, I'm so, uh. Don't. <laughs> Also, like that sometimes her internal monologue will just go into a full music video to express herself. It's mm-hmm. um, it's really fun and it kind of is a great way to. It's not that the film is monotonous, but it gives the film even more variety, which is nice. Mm-hmm. And then we have that dream sequence with Haley where she's in the pharmacy. All of the prescription bottles are uh, gymnastics routines, and all of the side effect, uh, side effects are injuries that you can get by performing them. Mm-hmm. And she just. Scoop small through a basket. Yeah. That one's really fun. It's really interesting. It's really visually satisfying. And it's an entirely different visual stylization than the kaleidoscope sequence, which is also a different visual stylization from the rest of the film. I feel like Derek Okada was really flexing his muscles here. He was experimenting a lot and having fun. Mm. The dream sequence does kind of accentuate one of the biggest problems I have with this film. All this subtext that's pointing towards injury being a major theme and they don't do anything with it. Yeah. I have already said my piece on that, so I'm not going to rant about it here, but it's just kind of another reason why it's so frustrating that it's not more prominent in the film. We talked about potential cut bits from the Karate Kid. I'm wondering if there was an injury plot in the script that wound up getting cut for time, maybe kind of towards the end or something. Yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately... Uh, this means you have to... Well, no, hang on. We don't have to vote yet. Extra innings or a thing, yay. I... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry, did you have more points? Uh, I don't really have enough to go on, so yeah. Oh, what was it going to be, though? Let's see if I, can... I was going to talk a little bit about Vickerman and Gum. Okay. Yeah. Like, there's just some prominent scenes with him and Gum. It really felt like they wanted to have him smoke during those scenes, but they wanted to keep their rating. <laughs> I can see it. That'd be a very different vibe to that character. Yeah. So that's the only thing I noticed about Vickerman and Gum. Like, I couldn't really make any more meaningful connections than that. Gum is sticky. It might stick it. I don't... You could stick it to the bottom of a, of a table. I don't... I don't know. Yeah, you're stretching there. Well, gum stretches. <laughs> Let's get to extra innings. Yes. So we have best gimmick, best montage, 
MVP doesn't really count. Even if we count the like team of Stick It, I don't really think we can count the team of Karate Kid. Yeah, I mean, you have... I guess three people at the end, but... Yeah, and Allie is not a significant portion of that. I mean, she is useful and, like, important there, but only from a logistics perspective. Right. She's closer to a team manager than a team member. Yeah. So what is the best training gimmick? What was her training gimmick for Stick It? I can't remember. Uh, do gymnastics or go to jail. <laughs> Which is a little bit of hyperbole, but not far off. And really, like, Haley preferred the jail option. <laughs> VGA it is. Meet my worst nightmare. The training gimmick from Karate Kid is, you know, the classic wax on, wax off. Show me wax on, wax off. Yes! Yes! Well, they could argue that it's, um, do karate or get killed. So, you have that parallel there. There's no way we can't pick the wax on and the, like, chore training thing for a karate kid. It's so culturally ubiquitous. Yeah. When you say wax on, wax off, everyone knows exactly what you mean. Being named Jackson, I got a lot of variations of that as a kid. Uh, So I don't have as much love for it as the rest of the popular consciousness, but... That is very fair, especially the connotations of... uh... Yeah, it doesn't actually invalidate the thing. It's just (laughs) me complaining about... Children are awful. Children are awful. (laughs) Yeah. And while I do love um, do gymnastics or go to jail, it is more of an abstract concept than a gimmick per se. Yeah. Training montage, I have more split thoughts because on one hand, we have Daniel training on his own during like the golden hour on the beach and all that. It is so wonderfully shot. The music is very, very appropriate for it. It's just gorgeous and it is kind of the apogee of his character and there are a lot of different training montages that happen throughout the film and i will say that while i enjoy it, it is a pretty long film and some of them we could uh we could i have a tiger in some of that yeah a little bit whereas we have the really great internal monologue narrations from stick it we also have those uh kaleidoscope montages during the internal competition to see who goes to the real competition so cool yeah both of them use montage incredibly well all those scenes are visually interesting and i think i'm gonna give it to stick it to eke out just a little bit and that's mostly because It is more recent and has the foundation of other sports movies to build upon that it is allowed to be much more experimental. Allison was responsible for the OG I Have a Tiger montage. So it makes sense that he would have a fondness for that style of montage uh, here in Karate Kid. We're seeing more new things here with Stick It, which again, allows it to have more of an identity, more individuality, more expression, which I think is a big part of the film, so it all works out. Which unfortunately means that we're split and have to actually vote instead of just going with the extra innings for point values. And before we get to our final vote, I just want to reiterate, I love both of these films. They are very different films but they are both excellently crafted, tell very heartwarming, emotional stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have not seen either of these yet, A, I'm impressed that you're sticking with the podcast. <laughs> Thank you, our fans. But B, you are doing yourself a disservice if you have not, so go watch them. Mm-hmm. Probably a decent number of people have seen Karate Kid, at least like as kids or whatever, because it's pretty culturally yeah. ubiquitous, but Sick It is pretty under the radar, and it does not yeah. deserve to be. Like, this should be talked about in the same way we talk about the Mean Girls, the Bring It Ons, the Hocus Pocuses. Yeah, unfortunately, for whatever reason, it did not have much critical success. Yeah. It has a 31% on Rotten Tomatoes. 
it is painful for me to have to choose between these two, but Stick It would not be the way it is without building off the foundation of the Karate Kid. And the Karate Kid is a little bit more technically proficient. That's partially because Stick It took some risks. Some of them paid off, some of them didn't. So I am gonna have to go with the Karate Kid on this one. I, uh, I think you're right about that. <laughs> I don't want you to be. I think Karate Kid is a better film, but I love Stick It so much that it's really hard to vote on this. I get you. Yeah. I've noticed this happen a lot. When it comes down to being caught in between two films that we both really enjoy, I tend to lean towards which film do I think is more technically proficient, whereas you lean into which film film made me feel more feelings. Yeah. But I mean, it's not like Karate Kid doesn't make me feel feelings. Karate yes. Kid is incredibly good. Has a lot of things that work about it. Yeah. So, yeah. I'm okay with Karate Kid moving on, but I kind of wish that they could, I don't know, do that thing from Naruto where they become friends and like fight the, the next bad guy together. <laughs> That's a thing in Naruto, right? That's a thing in like lots of shonen anime. Yes. Dragon Ball is like founded upon that in principle. Most of Goku's friends are his former enemies. They do that thing from Teen Wolf. <laughs> God, Teen Wolf is definitely a shonen anime. Anyway, with that, we have the films for the final next week. It will be Remember the Titans going up against The Karate Kid. Very strong finale. Yeah, Danny LaRusso has to fight the entire army of the Proto-Olympians. <laughs> you got really into the whole Clash of the Titans, Wrath of the Titans, Remember the Titans meme, didn't you? Listen, I still think about that meme all the time. Well, if you want to hear more of Jackson memeing up, be sure to tune in ne next week for the final of our sports bracket. And if you want to hear Shaggy making actual film criticism <laughs> points, also tune in for that. Afterwards, we have a few episodes participation trophies lined up, one of which is just going to be some really bottom-of-the-barrel bonkers sports comedies. <laughs> the other is going to be a little bit more weird and interesting. Mm -hmm. I'm going to leave those as surprises for now. Make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Podbean, and Spotify. Once again, this has been the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.